Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. We're back for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us today. You know, we uh, took a longer holiday weekend uh, than we might uh, usually do. We, we uh, did both, took both Friday and yesterday, uh, Labor Day, off uh, so that the team here could uh, get a little bit of break as we start heading into what's going to be a very busy fall with uh, redistricting on the plate. Uh, the elections are heating up, of course. Um, and I, I know there's been a lot of news over the last four days, and we're going to get to some of the most important stories in just a moment. Um, and, and I, you know, I, on one hand, it's gratifying that I've heard from any number of you who have said, where were you? There have been important news stories. We needed you on the air. So in a way, I, th- I thank you for thinking it's very important for us to be here. On the other hand, I guess I should say, sorry, we did take a break. But I guarantee you, with the show that's on the air five days a week, an hour every day, um, we are going to get to all of the big political news that has already been developing and that will develop in the months ahead. But it is very good to hear from you, and I hope you all had a terrific Labor Day holiday. Um, Of course, one of the really big and most important stories that we're going to look at today was uh, the Supreme Court, which uh, rejected a lawsuit which asked that it intervene to, uh, to block uh, Texas abortion law. We'll talk specifically about the terms of that law in a minute. Um, while it makes its way through the lower courts, the case is called Whole Woman's Health v. Jackson. It's a, I, I think the, it's not unfair to say the way that Texas has gone about their, tex, their um, abortion law is diabolically clever. And uh, we'll describe what that means in just a moment with our panel. So let me get to them right now. I'm very happy to have with us today Donna Lowry. You know her as the host of GPB-TV's Lawmakers. But many of you who live in North Georgia have watched Donna for many, many years when uh, she was an education reporter among her many duties at uh, 11 Live, WXIA-TV. Hey, Donna, how are you today? I'm great, Bill. I'm thrilled to be here with this panel, and I think it's going to be a great hour. Lots of good information. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what you all have to say, too. Um, We're also joined by uh, Charles Bullock, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, in many ways the dean of political science uh, professionals in Georgia, because, Chuck, uh, it's not just that you've been doing the job for a very long time. It's because you are one of the most respected voices in the world of uh, academic uh, academic, uh, political science. And we're very glad to have you here today, Chuck. Great to be with you. Um, We're joined also by Kurt Young, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Kurt, how's it going? Going well, Bill. How are things going on your end? Very well, and I'm very happy that you could be back with us. You've become a real regular as part of our rotation, and we're glad to have you here, Kurt. Yeah, thank you so much. um, Long-time part of our team, 
Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University. Um, but also for the purposes of our discussion today, we should point out that, Amy, um, you're, you have focused for a long time on research on the federal judiciary, the judicial selection process. process. I think also the role of courts as, as institutions. And um, I think your expertise today is going to be very helpful to us. So I'm, I'm glad you are here as well. Um, you're also the, what is it, associate or assistant chair of the political science department? Associate chair. Oh, right, which means you have a lot yeah. more work. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amy, let me start with you. So let me just give the very brief synopsis. I think many of our listeners are already aware of this. So Texas uh, passed a law that essentially bans abortion after six weeks. Uh, presume they claim when a fetal heartbeat is detected, although science, many scientists would argue that at six weeks, what you're hearing is not a heartbeat at all. But, you know, we'll leave that aside for just a moment. Um, because the Georgia law has a very similar uh, 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 component that, that also is maybe questioned in the courts. But the reason the Texas law is particularly, as I said, diabolical, is that it does not really give the state any power to enforce uh, the law. Instead, it turns it over to citizens. Citizens are allowed, if they uh, know of a woman who is going to have an abortion after the six-week period, they can file the lawsuit, not only against the woman, but against the rideshare driver who takes the woman uh, to the clinic and other ancillary people who may be involved, they can take that woman and the others to court. If they win their case that the woman has violated the six-week law, they are entitled to a $10,000 reward. Um, some, some have said this, this amounts to vigilante justice. The Supreme Court was uh, asked to block the law from taking effect last week while it made its way through the lower courts because there are serious questions. It, certainly, the law is a violation of both Casey and Roe v. Wade, and the court said, no, we are not going to step in. Um, and that's led to a lot of concerns about where we're headed with abortion and the Supreme Court. So, Amy, start us off with this by uh, discussing this strange way in which the state can't be sued. Um, there's nobody to take action against. That's one of the problems here. Um, so talk a little bit about that and how it complicates this whole matter. Yes. So one quick clarification, you can't actually sue the woman. Instead, who you can sue oh, is I'm sorry. the abortion That's right. provider, yes. right, to so the person yes. who actually performs the abortion. Anybody who aids you uh, in perhaps procuring the abortion, and also anyone which is problematic in terms of sort of thought policing, intends to. And so it's really unclear what that means. Like if you, who, what does intending to mean? If you say I support abortion, does that now mean you could be sued because perhaps you intend to in the future? So I think what I want to actually do is ask everyone to not think about this in terms of abortion, but instead bear with me as we do a hypothetical and we change what the topic is, because a lot of people right, sort of view this as a policy dispute. 
which is true. But right now, right, there is, in fact, a constitutionally protected fundamental right that this law says you don't get to exercise, period, end of story. And instead of the state enforcing that, it gives that enforcement power to individuals. And because of that, it's unclear who should be sued, right? How do you determine who the individuals are? Should you instead say that the court should not be able to accept the case? But I think we need to sort of have a hypothetical to understand what the implication of this is. So imagine instead the law said no one can sell or buy a gun. Blatantly unconstitutional, right? We have a Second Amendment. Second Amendment says you have an individual right to bear arms. You can't prevent people from doing that. But to get as a workaround, you say, oh, but we the state are not going to enforce it. Instead, we're going to allow people to sue who think that someone has sold a gun or helped someone sell a gun or help someone buy a gun or given them money to be able to buy the gun. And so now you are the person who owns the gun store. And you're like, wait, what do I do? Right? Because if I, right, I know I right, am allowed to sell these guns, right? The Constitution says so. We have lots of laws that say so. But the state has now put me in this thing that I risk being sued. So what's the decision I'm likely to make as the individual gun store owner Right, especially when the Supreme Court says, nope, we can't step in because we don't really know what to do here legally, you're going to stop selling the guns. So in all effect, and I think this is the thing that people don't understand, right now in Texas, abortion is outlawed. There is no right to abortion right now. That has been gone. Roe v. Wade, in fact, has been effectively overturned, even if it hasn't right, in sort of a legal sense, it has in a practical sense, because the abortion providers are worried that they're going to be sued. And the court has said, we're not going to stop this law from being put into effect and stopping those lawsuits before they happen. So even though the lawsuits are illegal, and even though, right, those would be unconstitutional, and is not, in fact, a mechanism that can happen here, the way that the law is set up and the Supreme Court's decision on it has led to, in fact, abortion becoming illegal and what is sort of a somewhat as a, a legally diabolical uh, scheme of preventing it. So, um, Donna, this all can get very complicated and confusing. So let me start with the most basic aspect with you, and that is the underlying law that, uh, that, that, that Texas passed. That law says no woman shall have an abortion after the fetus is, has reached six weeks. And again, a fetal, uh, presumably a fetal heartbeat. Um, and and uh, that law, just like Georgia's law, uh, violates both uh, Casey, which uh, uh, modified Roe years ago by saying um, an abortion is legal until fetal viability which is usually determined at 24 weeks. Um, and, of course, Roe v. Wade itself, it, it violates that as well because it's Roe which gives the woman the right to choose. So that is the most basic underlying uh, uh, aspect of this entire um, uh, matter, right, Donna? Well, that, that's it. And um, I guess that is, um, that, that is on the basic level. But as Amy has explained, this is such, so much more complicated 
and the the need to really dig into what Texas has done here that is so unique. And um, I think one of the justices, the Justice Roberts said unprecedented uh, in in terms of the way they're going about this, that is um, it's going to take us a while to figure it all out, to fig- to determine what's going to happen. And we're going to have to wait until we actually see a case go before the Supreme Court before we um, truly know what this is all going to mean. And I think in terms of Georgia, a lot of people were seeing this as similar to HB 481, Georgia's law, um, the so-called fetal heartbeat law, but it really, it really isn't because it stops with just the six week um, limit on, uh, on when uh, a fetal heartbeat, which is usually about six weeks, um, that, that a woman would feel um, I mean, when, when there's a detection of a fetal heartbeat, it does. And when it comes to it being anything, our law in Georgia being anything like Texas, it stops there because the state is still um, the person, the 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 um, who you would sue in this case, not individuals. And I think people need to keep that in mind. Our 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 law is so much different from this law. In Texas, um, Chuck, uh, Chuck, the reason the Georgia law, of course, has been enjoined for until it gets heard in courts is because it is the state that is the actor and, and the enforcer of this. And therefore, the groups that oppose the law have someone they can uh, uh, sue and look for uh, 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 satisfaction in terms of from the courts. But, but Chuck, you know, this is one of those uh, moments when we talk about elections having consequences. Uh, Donald Trump was president of the United States. He appointed uh, three very conservative justices. And one of the things that people are really paying attention to in this case is the fact that this is the first Supreme Court decision on abortion when uh, we have Amy Coney Barrett, who has been a longtime opponent of abortion, on the court. Yes, Chuck? Well, that's right. Yeah. And we ought to also keep in mind, it's not just the three members of the Supreme Court that Donald Trump appointed. He appointed scores of judges to lower courts. And therefore, you know, this may be heard by an anti-abortion judge at the, the trial court level uh, when it goes up on appeal to the, be the Fifth Circuit. Uh, you may well get a panel there, which is predominantly Trump appointees. So, uh, you know, th- that would then perhaps create the situation where you're asking the Supreme Court to overturn what these lower courts have, have decided. One other element, and this has just occurred to me, and Amy may want to uh, say, no, I'm completely wrong on this because she spends a lot more time with this than I do. But in terms of who you might sue, and what I thought of was a case from, I believe it's about 1948, Shelley versus Kramer, which was involved racially restrictive covenants. And this was brought in under the 14th Amendment. Now, these covenants are like what you get with your homeowners association now, which says you, you can't paint your house for a million if you live there. Well, this, uh, these restric- racially restrictive covenants said you could not sell your house to, to an African-American. Uh, courts weighed in on this, the Supreme Court did, and said, well, this actually involves state action because the way you'd enforce this is you'd have to go to a judge. And the judge is a, is a, is a state actor, and that judge, therefore, makes this uh, susceptible to the 14th Amendment, which just regulates you know, what states are doing. So I don't know. I was wondering if that might be a hook by which this, you could have somebody to sue, because that's been part of the question is, who do you, who do you seek to enjoin? You keep from acting here. Yeah, and I, I think, Amy, do you want to? 
Yeah, so the quick answer on that one is you're right. So Shelley V. Kramer established this idea of state action, which once a lawsuit is in fact brought by someone either suing an abortion provider or someone they're saying aided and abetted, then once that suit is in place, right, you have this possibility of making the argument of state action, right, that you're using the state actor to enforce an unconstitutional law. The problem is that the Supreme Court stipulated that they lack the power to enjoin a court from acting from the outset. So that's an argument that can only be made once the, an, a suit is brought. Once, by the you got a, party. once you got a live case, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, Kurt, uh, you know, right before we went on the air, Amy Steigerwald said, oh, there's nothing I like more than getting into the wonky Supreme Court, uh, uh, you know, machinations. And, and, there, and, and in this case, that wonkiness is sig- terribly significant in terms of what it may tell us about abortion someday. But, but I do think, Kurt, that we never want to forget, as we discuss this, that the heart of this case is a woman's right to choose. Now, I get that there are a vast numbers of women out there who are part of uh, the um, um, anti-choice, the pro-life movement. So I'm not suggesting all women believe that uh, women should have the right to an abortion. But, Kurt, for the sake of this conversation, one of the things that strikes me about what this Texas law does is it puts, once again, uh, families, women in poorer communities at risk in an entirely different way than women and families of means. You may be in Texas. You, if, you have, if you're a lawyer, you can get on an airplane and fly to Los Angeles and have your abortion legally there. If, on the other hand, you are working in a low-paying job, whether you're Hispanic, African-American, or white, uh, you're, you may be trapped. You may have nowhere to go to try to deal with the abortion that you choose. Kurt? Right, right, right. And uh, w- once again, these types of national issues often boil down to the, 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 the racial and, and social dynamics in this particular, particular space, right? Um, and what we see in the state of Texas is that we see a growing, quote, minority, unquote, populations uh, and a dwindling, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, white electorate. Uh, and so the question then becomes, how does that impact itself on the politics of the day in, in the state of Texas? And as we'll see uh, uh, very soon throughout the South and perhaps all, all, all over the country. Um, and so what that speaks to, Bill, is the broader reality that this case is not occurring in a vacuum. Right? It's happening in the context of some major, major national forces that are unfolding. Um, we see the country divided uh, down the middle. Uh, even in the midst of that division, you have a significant majority of Americans who are opposed to restrictions on Roe uh, uh, or the overthrowing, uh, the, over, uh, um, the upending of Roe. Uh, so it doesn't have full national support. And certainly women in general, women of color, are part of that percentage. And so it, it's interesting to see it becoming a political issue right at the, the point in time where we're looking at these, 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 these forces, right? Just 2020, we saw a, a major turnout to vote effort. Recall, recall, Bill, right after Trump was elected, we saw women take to the streets all over the country to begin to de- demonstrate uh, their willingness to become immersed in the political process all over the country, right? Uh, then just recently, we saw women uh, take the lead in 
uh, black women in particular, take the lead in standing up for uh, these Jim Crow-like uh, voting restrictions taking place throughout the country. So Roe v. Wade, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, this case in Texas, uh, 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 the Jackson case is going to, I anticipate, feed into an already growing mass-based type of uh, uh, social protest dynamic. And as we have seen very recently, black women, Latino women, women of color are going to be a part of that development. One last thing I would like to make a point quickly, Bill. You made a point a moment ago that elections have consequences. It's very interesting that part of the dynamic of this court right now uh, is a result of <laughs> the inability of the Obama administration to fulfill that that age-old saying, right? Because we know that uh, Merrick Garland was 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 uh, I guess now um, um, Attorney General Garland was. Uh, um, selected by the Obama administration based on his election, a uh, very fair and clear election to uh, fill that seat, um, uh, uh, vacated by Scalia's death. And we saw that it wasn't necessarily the election, but it was the raw use of power. And certainly that's going to be a part of the discussion going forward. Yeah, uh, Donna, I think... I, I wa- go ahead, go Donna. Ahead. No, I was just going to say, I oh. think uh, what he's saying is right. I think this is opening up um, a lot of people who... Um, probably didn't really think that there would be a significant challenge to Roe v. Wade, despite what we've seen happen in um, state legislatures across the country, that um, now that uh, this decision really is a a wake-up call to a lot of them on what could really happen. Um, So let's put... is to uh, Go ahead, Chuck. make uh, abortion politics and make the court's politics as significant for Democratic voters as it has been for Republican voters for quite some time. I mean, Republicans for years have run on pledges of the kinds of justices they would appoint, and that really fires up Republican bases. But for Democrats, it's been, okay, what's well, maybe one of the issue number 15 or 20. But this kind of thing is going to highlight it. And so, yeah, uh, it, I think, does have that impact, that potential of mobilizing voters. So this, along with the the voting laws that have been passed, uh, may turn out to be a gift that Republican state legislatures are giving to Democrats. Now, yes, this particular law may be very popular within Texas, but it's the kind of thing Democrats nationwide can run on. Um, so let's put this in the uh, uh, context of what's coming up at the Supreme Court, Amy, because this will play into the politics that Chuck just talked about and Kurt talked about as well. Um, the court has agreed, and in October we'll take up the Mississippi abortion case um, law. Mississippi, Mississippi had made it abundantly clear that they had passed that law with a very specific purpose of getting it to the Supreme Court and using it for the court to overturn Roe. Um, so there's no question about that. And, and that's a month down the road. And, um, and the Texas case and the refusal of the court to intervene uh, just starts setting up the concerns out there about what the court might do with Mississippi. But I think it's interesting that the Wall Street Journal uh, last, late last week wrote an editorial really fiercely condemning this Texas law. Um, among other things, I'll read you the, the last lines of it. Um, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson is really the target in the uh, last section of the editorial. And the journal says, sometimes we wonder if Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton 
is a progressive plant. His ill-conceived legal attack against Obamacare backfired on Republicans in last year's elections and lost at the Supreme Court. Now he and his Texas mates are leading with their chins on abortion. How about thinking first? So as, it, as we move toward the Mississippi case, two things at stake here. One, the actual right of a woman to choose. And two, um, the, the election politics as we move toward 2022. Yes, Amy? Most decidedly. Um, I do think it's important because I think this is getting lost in the discussion on number one. Roe v. Wade has effectively been overruled in the state of Texas. There are no abortions right now in the state of Texas. Abortion providers are not performing them because they are fearful of being sued. So it doesn't really matter if Roe v. Wade is still good law. Abortions aren't happening. And in the meantime, other states can follow suit and do the exact same thing. More broadly, which is, I think, also one of the issues that the Wall Street Journal and others have been concerned about, there's nothing that says that this scheme that they have set up in the law of saying we won't enforce it, we'll let private citizens enforce it, that can't be used on any other number of fonts, right, whether they are conservative policy priorities or liberal policy priorities, banning the use of handguns banning uh, buying of certain types of things, prohibiting certain people from voting. There's nothing that would stop this from being used. If we're writing a law that says yeah. no white person can vote or no black person can vote. The, but on the politics... Yeah, that's, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, but then the, the flip side of this is yes, right? Uh, one of the things that most people don't realize is that prior to Roe v. Wade, there was no pro-life movement because there didn't need to be. They had one. Abortion was outlawed. It was only after it was changed that that came in. And so, right, it is, in fact, very possible that this is going to have the idea of really energizing. Well, certainly there has been a large group that has been focused on abortion rights. It's been really within sort of those already activated groups rather than more broadly throughout the country. And this is an interesting scope to see of what happens when sort of, um, I think with Kurt that mentioned, that polls routinely show that people don't want abortion to be outlawed or there to be big restrictions. And so how are they going to react to this now? All right, uh, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. And then I do want to come back and talk a little bit about the impact of this on politics. Uh, Amy, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what I started to say is that, as you point out, the Wall Street Journal talks about consequences if other states decide to use a very similar uh, an idea to pass laws. They say this, the law sets an awful precedent that conservatives should hate. Could California allow private citizens to sue individuals for hate speech or New York deputize private lawsuits against gun owners? So just to make your point even more clearly, let's get to our break. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. <laughs> Chuck Bullock, Donna Lowry, Amy Steigerwald, Kurt Young join us for today's Political Rewind. Um, Chuck, and then Kurt, I'd love to get you into this part of the conversation as well. Um, you know, it's interesting to me, Chuck, that uh, we have not been hearing a lot uh, recently, at least I'm not aware of it if we have, about the Georgia abortion law, which, is, which was so terribly controversial when it passed and, and which uh, uh, continues to be a, a really strong uh, concern for pro-choice uh, people. But 
part of the reason I think we haven't is that it's been enjoined. It's been stayed until it goes through the courts. But it's interesting to me, Chuck, that Republicans in the Georgia legislature, like those in Texas, after a long time of recognizing that going taking up abortion restriction legislation was dangerous, have so fully jumped back into it. I mean, I remember the days when uh, the Georgia House uh, would reject every, every opportunity that came along from some lawmaker who wanted to do it to introduce some abortion restriction or, uh, restriction or another. They, the politicians for years recognized this is not an issue you really want to jump into easily, right? That's right. Yeah, I think to put this, uh, my, my recollection of the history is that uh, when he was running for governor, uh, Brian Kemp promised that he would pass or get the legislature to pass the most restrictive abortion laws in the nation. And so, sure enough, in that first session, uh, 2019, he does have a proposal. But again, my recollection is that what the legislature adopted went beyond what uh, Brian had mm-hmm. proposed. And so he kind of got away from him. He starts the ball rolling, and then it goes right on downhill, and he can't stop it. Yeah, and you know, uh, you know, individual legislators. What are they concerned about? They're concerned about their reelection. So they look very narrowly. They look at their, you know, fifty thousand people in the state house district, or one hundred twenty thousand, or whatever in the state senate district. And if it plays well there, they may go with it. Now, people at the state level, and certainly you know, consultants who are thinking about winning statewide. They're, they can be more hesitant and say, you know, this may play well in your bailiwick, but this is going to be a, a net loser if we push this statewide. So I think that's why speakers of the House uh, in the past, I'm talking about both Tom Murphy as well as um, David Rawson, have you know, tried to keep these things off the agenda that, you know, let, let the legislators talk about it and then they can go home and talk about, well, I introduced a bill to do such and such and get credit for that. But then the leadership tries to say, let's don't bring this up to a vote because this may be a net loser for us. But this is an instance where things got away from, from, the, from the leadership. We saw the same kind of thing in some other contexts uh, play out very recently in Arkansas, where the governor himself has come back and said, gee, some of the things you know, are just completely out of my control, and uh, you know, I, I can't even stop things with a veto. So that's what we, I think, are seeing here, that stuff that plays very well you know, in the red parts of Georgia – uh, get enacted. But as we saw in the last year, Georgia's not red anymore. And being able to play you know, well in rural Georgia may actually cost you in urban Georgia. And what I think we've seen in the last year is for the first time, urban Georgia is now outvoting rural Georgia. And so uh, you know, abortion politics, uh, the, the voting things, all of these may come back and, uh, and just say, be items that Democrats can run on successfully. Yeah, Kurt, uh, there's been a lot of commentary over the last three or four days about just what Chuck is saying, that uh, Republicans will come to regret in the states, in Texas, perhaps perhaps in Georgia. Uh, We'll wait and see about it. They'll come to regret this embrace of the most draconian uh, anti-abortion laws that you could possibly pass uh, because it will energize the other side. And most particularly, uh, it could energize uh, those those people who are still, if there are is any is any such thing anymore, swing voters, independent women, for instance, suburban uh, suburbanites. So, uh, Kurt, there are many Republicans who are wondering if they've really uh, made a bad uh, uh, gotten into a bad situation here. 
And I think you can see some of that right now. Uh, uh, the silence is deafening. I, I don't think you're hearing, and I could be wrong here, but I don't think you're hearing a massive roar of celebration uh, behind the final demise of Roe. And I appreciate that point, Amy. I, you're right. You're right. For all intents and purposes, Roe is, is now uh, unconstitutional. And I guess abortion, rather. Uh, abortion is illegal in the state of Texas. And that bodes that bodes something for the rest of the uh, country. But Bill, the, 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 I see a couple of things happening. On the one hand, uh, 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 the Republican Party for a long time considered itself the Big Ten Party. Of course, all parties try to have a diverse uh, makeup, but the Republican Party in particular was once considered to be a, a tent party. And beneath that tent, you had at least two, maybe more, but at least two categories. You had the social warriors. Uh, who wanted to pursue uh, uh, faith-based or, or moral uh, uh, policies as it reflected their religious or cultural beliefs or, or social uh, uh, um, uh, um, expectations, if you will. And then you had, for lack of a better term, let's, let's call them the electoral uh, uh, warriors, those who saw, as Chuck uh, laid out, the goal to be, the goal of politics is to win, right? The goal of the party is to be elected, to win. And if it means to take a strong line on a social issue, then you take it. But if that social issue will present, prevent one from winning, then you don't take that issue. It seems, <laughs> Bill, that what has happened is that the, uh, 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 the electoral warriors have lost to the social warriors in terms of the control of the party. The social warriors have been able to, to, to establish a significant string of victories. And this is connected to Trump. I don't think Trump is the reason for this. I think he is a part of the formula. Uh, which has tilted the balance uh, uh, in terms of the direction of the party and the position it would take on these types of issues, whether it's practical or not. Um, and then the second thing that I see happening here is, and I think we kind of talked about it earlier, which is the extent to which it's occurring in the midst of a particular kind of politic right now, which is reviving uh, um, a, a political discussion that may, have, may maybe reached the crescendo in the 1960s and 1970s, which is, the idea here now is to combat these types of issues by turning out the vote, right? In fact, you're hearing an interesting pushback from the Biden administration, subtle pushback from the Biden administration against these claims from the, the progressive uh, or the left wing of the party to force the administration to take a harder line on the uh, ending the filibuster and these other kind of uh, uh, um, traditional mechanisms. And the administration's position is that, no, we think that the turnout will counterbalance, be the counterbalance to uh, uh, nullify these kinds of, uh, of policies. Uh, but that's yet to be seen. But nonetheless, I think it speaks to some of what's happening right now. Um, all right. I'll tell you what I'd like to do. Thank you for that. All of you, uh, this is an issue we are going to be talking about a lot in the weeks to come, uh, not only as we see the political fallout from the Texas case, but also as we prepare for the Supreme Court to take up uh, that big Mississippi case. And again, Georgia's right in the mix there because Georgia's law, that the, the ability to put that law into play, to activate that law, uh, will in many ways be determined by what happens in the months ahead in the Supreme Court. So we will continue talking about it, but, but I would like to get to a couple more interesting issues on the show today. Uh, Donald Trump's name has been invoked several times on the show today, Donna. And uh, late last week, Donald Trump began, he's got a ticket now in Georgia, or the beginnings of a ticket. No surprise, he formally endorsed Herschel Walker uh, for U.S. Senate. And probably no surprise 
that he endorsed uh, Burt Jones, the Jackson senator, Republican senator, uh, uh, who, who both Herschel and Burt Jones, of course, have, uh, have repeatedly, repeatedly uh, sided with Trump in his claims that the Georgia election was fraudulent, that Joe Biden stole the election from Donald Trump. And that seems to be a key to whether you win Donald Trump's endorsement or not, because Donna... Brian Kemp certainly didn't get that endorsement, leaving us to wonder if Trump's going to get involved in that race as he's kind of hinted he might. Yeah, he he has talked about it. And of course, you've got Vernon Jones in the, in play and he has, so, you know, supported him in a sense in the in the past, or at least you you hear that from Vernon Jones who's running for governor also. But it seems as if the governor is proceeding as if he does have Trump's blessing in terms of, you know, some of the things he's pushing, conservative agenda items, such as staying away from the mask mandates and threatening to go after cities that do have the mandates, keeping businesses open during the pandemic and and opening Georgia earlier than other mm-hmm. states, um, encouraging people to get vaccines, but cer- certainly not pushing hard for them. Um, You know, it took him a while to publicly acknowledge the rising number of cases in Georgia when he finally had the press conference about two weeks ago um, dealing with the the pandemic and the rise. So, So when he talks, he focuses on thinking more that he's focusing on that conservative base that, you know, he's following the Trump playbook, but he's also continuing to garner support by and he's doing this with Matt even getting Trump's blessing on this. So he appears popular uh, still with Republicans in this state, um, and especially in his handling of the, hi- the virus. So even though he doesn't have his blessing, he certainly is using his playbook. Okay, I'm going to ask a question for Amy, Chuck, and Kurt, and I'd love some just a couple of quick answers on this one. Number one, uh, do we really think that the Trump allies who are trying to persuade, apparently, David Perdue to challenge Brian Kemp, his bid for governor, do we really think David Perdue wants to jump in this race? Let me get a, just a quick one from you, Amy, you, Chuck, and then you, Kurt. No. <laughs> oh, good enough, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, I don't think David Perdue is eager to do this, no. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, Kurt, do you I, concur? I concur. I think he belongs to a previous era of the Republican Party. Yeah, well, uh, that's interesting because we we could imagine David Perdue having a political future. But, you know, Chuck, it it has seemed like this notion that David Perdue would jump into the Senate race just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And without a strong candidate for Trump to get behind for governor— He's not going to get behind Vernon Jones, I don't think, anytime soon, despite the fact that Vernon Jones changed parties to support Trump, uh, uh, Chuck. No, I don't think so. And uh, this this Trump ticket, we've left off one name, and that is Jody Heiss, who he's endorsed for Secretary of State. Yes. So he's got oh, three that's folks right. Here. Thank you. Uh, where this might really become significant would be, say, each of these Trump endorsees does win the Republican nomination. So there is then a ticket in November of 2022. Some share of Georgia voters, some share of Trump voters will only vote for those people who Trump has endorsed. And therefore, if the governor is not on that endorsement list, he's going to lose some share of potential Republican votes. Might that hurt the Republican Party? Absolutely. 
Should that bother Trump? Probably, but Trump is trying to build the Trump party. That's more important to him than the Republican party. And therefore, right after uh, the defeat of the two Georgia senators, Trump reportedly said he was glad they lost because they hadn't done enough for him. (laughs) So, So yeah, Trump is not a party man. He's a Trump man. Yeah, Amy? Um, I concur fully, and I think it's also not insignificant that Purdue had the highest polling numbers going into November, and it was only because there was a third-party candidate that was running that he had to go to a runoff. Only after that did he say, I'm going to sort of fully go in with Trump. He started campaigning with Leffler. He campaigned with Trump. He sent out the stuff sort of against the election, and that led to him losing Right. If I'm David Perdue going in again as a Trump candidate, it didn't work out well for him last time. And it seems like, you know, I would be worried about it backfiring again. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we have we have Chuck Bullock uh, with us today. And Chuck Bullock uh, is probably knows more about redistricting than uh, many other people uh, who follow po- uh, politics across the country. And I want to talk about a story the AJC ran this morning about Athens and Clark County, strongholds of Demo- for Democrats and yet dominated by Republicans. And it all has to do with gerrymandering. We'll talk about that in a minute. State of Georgia reached a very grim milestone uh, late last week. Uh, more than 20,000 people in Georgia have now died of COVID-19. 81 deaths per day in Georgia just over the past week. There's been a jump in uh, vaccine rates, up 15% over the past week, which of course is good news. And I hope all of you out there will uh, look at getting vaccinated. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about that on the show tomorrow uh, rather than today. We have Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, Andre Gillespie, and Greg Bluestein here to do that. So we'll look at COVID and we'll look at the politics of COVID. We'll put that off until tomorrow. But while we have you here, Chuck Bullock, um, I do want to point out, I mean, your, your book, The Most Political Activity in America, uh, is the story of how redistricting, how gerrymandering has changed the political landscape, the partisan political landscape. And I did think, Chuck, that the AJC piece this morning uh, really was a case study in how gerrymandering can affect citizens of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, a district. Um, you're a man out there in athens Clark County. <laughs> athens Clark County voted for Joe Biden by 70%. And yet two of the three state representatives for athens Clark are Republicans. Both state senators are Republicans. Both members of the U.S. House are Republicans. Perfect example of how you can draw lines and essentially disenfranchise, whether it's Democrats doing it when they're in power or Republicans now. Yes, Chuck? Oh, absolutely right. Yeah, Republicans, when they drew the lines 10 years ago, were not <laughs> wandering babes in the woods. They, they certainly had the maps that Democrats had drawn in the past and could use it. So what we've seen here with regard to the state house and state senate, the gerrymandering technique is called cracking, where you've got a concentration. could be a partisan concentration. could be a racial or ethnic concentration that could dominate a district. But if you then divide it, it then becomes minority groups within each of two districts. And that's very, very clear what happened with regard to the state Senate. You know, Clark County, if kept intact, would dominate a state Senate district. 
but by dividing it in two between districts 46 and 47, uh, these become two Republican districts because everything around Clark County is, is very red. With regard to the state house, traditionally Clark County had two representatives, and this goes back to the old county unit days. And uh, once we even got beyond that, then yeah, there would be two house districts and kind of a part of a third one in Clark County, but the two dominant ones would elect Democrats. And then the part that was you know, the leftover would be then part of a Republican district. Certainly, if Democrats were drawing the maps today, that's, again, what they would come up with. Mm-hmm. But by bringing, combining minor, small, smaller parts of Clark County within larger areas around it, Oconee County, Jackson, uh, Barrow, then what you end up with is, you know, you, Democrats get one district, which is wholly within Clark County, and then the other two, which are part Clark and part surrounding areas, both of those elect Republicans. It's a little bit different story with regard to the congressional district. Yeah, it was kind of surprising when Clark County, geographically the smallest in the state, top three or four precincts were carved off and put up in the ninth district with Andrew Clyde. But Clark County could not dominate a congressional district. And so, you know, Clark County Democrats are going to be outvoted kind of whatever you do with them with regard to a congressional district, unless we go all the way back to the John Barrow district. And they managed to draw a district from him, but they had to go from you know, Clark County to Augusta to Savannah to be able to find enough uh, Democrats to stitch together this long bacon strip of a district. Yeah, that's um, Amy, it, interesting to point out that one of the most important things that the people who showed up for the redistricting committee hearings that they held in a number of uh, cities around the state, one of their number one priorities was, um, or, or one of their top priorities, was keep our cities together. Keep yeah. us in districts that have continuity, that in which we are a whole entity. And the other was transparency. And the legislature has now, we now learn from the uh, uh, committee itself that they've set rules which are going to be just like the rules they had 10 years ago, which are not going to allow for transparency and which quite likely will not uh, respect the wishes of people who said, keep my city together, keep my county together. Amy and then Kurt. One of the important things, actually bringing it back to the Supreme Court, is the Supreme Court has said that using partisan reasons for drawing districts to say one of the partisan one of the reasons that you can use is partisan. So it is completely fine to say that you are trying to uh, protect certain incumbents or to in fact divide up party power. That is not uh, an illegal reason for doing it. And so we're going to continue seeing that happen. Um, I think probably the biggest thing, honestly, is the uh, determination not to have public hearings. Um, about the drawing of the districts and the weighing in and the fact that they decided to keep um, the very non-transparent way of doing it that they had used 10 years ago because it does sort of call into question why not do it publicly, right? What is what is the concern and, and why are you trying to keep that hidden? Why is it, for example, um, one of the rules is that they only have to make the maps um, I think it's 48 hours. It's a 48 or 72 hours, Chuck, that they have to be made public before they're even voted on. Uh, it's not a very lot of time. Most people aren't going to be able to overlay the maps and really see what's happening. Um, and it likely means that we're going to see a lot of this, um, as Chuck said, cracking going on once again to try to dilute power, particularly of groups that seem to be gaining it. Yeah. Um, and Kurt, Kurt, let me ask you to speak to the fact that when we do these uh, districts, uh, one of the things that African-Americans often uh, pay a price because they're packed 
into districts that give them some they, they give them the uh, opportunity to elect a, a, a Democrat, say, if they're voting Democrat, which most of them are. Uh, but it dilutes their power across uh, districts as well. That's right. It's a, it's a, 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 I guess it's a technique that's about 40, 50 years old now, right? And we, we, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be surprised that it's bearing fruit the way that it is, uh, the way that it has now. Um, and, and it's a problem that's taking place all over the country, especially in those areas. And, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds in the next, um, the next uh, uh, few cycles. Uh, areas that demonstrated themselves to be effective uh, um, um, ground swells for um, um, the recent 2020 elections, right? All these major ur- urban areas and other uh, pockets of strong black voters and, and other uh, voters of color. The interesting, uh, I think, dynamic that's going to come from it, though, Bill, is the extent to which we're seeing a kind of popular uh, involvement in those communities in the redistricting process, right? At some point, something that was kind of an esoteric process uh, that was left up to policymakers on the Hill and in the capitals uh, throughout the country. Now, you're beginning to find these discussions taking place, for example, in communities among students, right? Here at Clark Atlanta University, we're having uh, students discussing uh, uh, redistricting in a way that uh, provides them with the means by which they can participate in that kind of process. Uh, into the future. Um, Chuck, I should say, though, racial, the, the Supreme Court has said that racial gerrymandering is now illegal, and nevertheless, you still find ways to pack African Americans in, into districts. Well, part of the problem, and this is true, particularly for, say, a state house district, which is the smallest of the elements we're talking about, not so much so for a congressional district, and that is that the distribution of minorities is what is sometimes referred to as a natural gerrymander. That is, when you're drawing these districts of 50 to 60,000 people uh, in the midst of uh, a central city where minorities are you know, the predominant group, it would be hard not to have a district which is going to be right. overwhelmingly Democratic. So right. that does, right, it, it, term again is it wastes a lot of votes. <laughs> you only need 50% yes. plus one to win, but you end up these districts which are 70, 80% Democratic. Okay, I've got to stop us because we're out of time, but Donna Lowry. I'm thinking that you're going to get set. I assume the lawmakers yep. is going to yep. be there watching the redistricting mm-hmm. session. I want to promote that whenever it takes Thank place, you. maybe November, huh, Donna? Thank you. We're, yeah, we're thinking it might be November, and uh, lawmakers will be there keeping up with all of this. And we'll be watching it here on Political Rewind as well. Uh, Donna Lowry, Kurt Young, Chuck Bullock, and Amy Steigerwall, thank you for a terrific conversation to start us off. Uh, in, uh, in on another week of the show. We're out of here until tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask uh, when you go inside. And you know what? If you haven't gotten a vaccine, please don't waste any more time. Go out and get it now. Tell your friends to do the same thing. See you all tomorrow.